re-examine who are we as a church? You know, what, what is, why are we here? Why has God placed us here? Uh, and, and so we're talking through those things that we say are our core values. Now, uh, before we get into that, just uh, when I was a freshman in Bible college, uh, one of the things that I enjoyed and had always enjoyed was playing basketball. Now, I know I look like a football player. I didn't always look like this, just so you know. You know and, uh, but back in those days, I was a bean pole. In fact, I used to work at a factory, and, and I always wore coveralls. And uh, they called me John Boy. So you just have an idea. You heard from here with that show way back. I used to be skinny, believe it or not. But anyway, so I went out to basketball. I love basketball. And uh, so I went out my freshman year of college for our basketball team. And I made the team. In fact, I got a scholarship. My scholarship was a bag lunch and all the milk I could drink every night after practice. So there you go. Come to think of it, I think I was paying for that in my tuition. Anyway, so, uh, but the cafeteria was closed, so they would have a sack lunch ready for us so we'd have something to eat because you couldn't eat before, before practice or you who have been in practices, you know what happens if you eat before practice. So uh, anyway, so, so I remember the first day we got together for our first practice and, and the coach was there and we're all, you know, before we're kind of warming up and there's guy I never could stuff. I have another whole story about that, but there's a guys that are jamming the ball and, and, you know, then we're horsing around and we're playing and, and we all think we're cool and, you know, behind the back passes and all this kind of stuff. We're just all kind of showing our stuff because it's the first time we've been around each other. And the, and the coach walks in and, and gathers us together and he says, okay, guys, he said, uh, just want you to know where, where we're going to be going for the next, uh, several practices. He says, uh, we're going to go, we're going to go back to the basics. And so I need to start here. And he had a basketball in his hands and he held it up and he said, here's where we begin. This is a basketball, which we all kind of rolled our eyes and like, oh man, what is going on here? But he wasn't kidding. He, I mean, and he says, here's what you do with the basketball. You bounce the ball. Here's how you dribble. I want you to practice dribbling. And, there, and then he, we had to grab a ball. And he said, stand in place. No, just, and, and then pretty soon he had us practicing bounce passes because he said that's the safest pass. And it was like, you know, three or four days, pretty excruciating, which I hope this series isn't like that for you, but just of, of going back over the basics uh, because he knew we needed that refresher. You know, we all thought we were so good, and there were just some things that along the line that, he, that we had forgotten. And uh, so we're going to do that <clears throat> as a church. We're going to kind of re-examine why we're here, you know, at least what we thought and what we believe as we've, as we've thought this through. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're Christmas Eve, we were one year in this building, and uh, we're almost a year and a half as a church. So, so what, why are we here? What brought us to the conclusion that we should be a church? And so we want to talk to it. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig into this morning's message. Father, guide us. Uh, you know, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk through some things that uh, some of it has to apply to us as a church here. Some of it has to apply to where we fit even in the history and, and, and some of the things that have taken place over the history of Christianity that have had an implication that, that, in, that some of it is good and some that is bad and and so just as we try to make sure we are on the right track concerning what you want us to be as True North Church, I just pray that this will be a profitable time for us and pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So, True North Church, that's where we need to begin. Why that name? Now, some of you know because we've talked about this before, but, but let me talk us through this. 
So we're, we're you know, here, go back two years, uh, probably a little bit, not quite two years, but uh, I'll probably be maybe uh, 16 or 17 months. We had, uh, some of us had been meeting, a small group had been meeting upstairs in uh, Harley dealership for Bible studies on Sunday nights. And, you know, that had gone on for a while. And, and then uh, a group of uh, six guys decided we w- were going to sit down. We're trying to, we're starting to ask the question, what, what do you have in mind? So one, mo- one Saturday morning early, uh, we went to Perkins and, and we, were, we asked if we could be in the back room because we wanted to talk, start talking and praying through, you know, what are you trying to do here, God? What, what is next for us? And, and as we prayed and we talked about it, we, we, felt, we felt that God was directing us to become a church. But, you know, as you're, you know, you've you got to ask that question, okay, do, why do we need another church in, in this town? Well, purely from, from population-wise, I'd, I'd say, yeah, I mean, we've got over 50,000 people, and, and if you filled every spot in every church, you'd still have thousands of people that are not in a church, but, but more importantly, not in the body of Christ. And so there, that part was not a hard decision. But then we asked, okay, what are we supposed to be? What, what, what are we supposed to wrap ourselves around? And, and so we began to talk about, you know, well, let's come up with a name for ourselves. And there were a lot of, I wish I remembered some of them, but there were a lot of names that were kind of floated around. And, and, we, and we landed on this one. And, and here's the why. Uh, you know, as we... we I remember when the, when the idea came up, came up, what about True North Church? And first thing is I'm thinking, okay, what does actually True North mean? And, and so did a little investigating, and, and this time I Googled it just for, for all of us. But So I, I, you know, I thought, what's the difference? Because I remember back in the days I used to hunt. I know some of you still love to hunt, and, and I'm glad for you. I don't know one, I got to tell you, probably, oh, 10 years ago, one morning, a morning about like this, like it's been cold, I was sitting out there in the cold, shivering. You know, you start warm, but, you know, you, well, in fact, you work up a sweat getting back to your stand. But then in a little while, that becomes cold, and I'm sitting there, and I'm freezing to death. And every sound I heard that I thought was a deer ended up being a squirrel. And I thought to myself that day, why did I do this again? Especially because I wasn't very good at it. I didn't bring home meat very often. And so, so that kind of, you know, uh, yet my, one of my grandsons asked me yesterday, he saw my guns, he says, Grandpa, why do you have these guns? And I said, because I, well, I used to hunt. Well, anyway, so I, I used to, to do that. And I can remember one time early on, we lived up in the Catskill Mountains, and, and I went out, and, there, and the Catskill Mountains, very, very dense woods. Uh, and so I went to, I was going to go hunting, and I wasn't, I was going right out behind my house, so I didn't, I thought I was safe. So I just head out in the woods. A couple of hours later, I'm trying to find my way back out of those woods, and I'm having a difficult time. And it's, you know, I, I keep ending up the same spot. I'm thinking, okay, this is not good. And, took, and so I started learning that I needed to read my compass before I went in, so at least I could get back near the same spot. But I discovered, so what's the difference? What is, you know, is that what we're talking about with a compass? And, and found, now that's magnetic north, and there's a difference. In fact, this, this kind of brings it out. A compass needle points to the magnetic north pole. The magnetic North Pole is currently located, notice that, currently located in the Baffin Island region of Canada, and from the UK, it is west of True North. The horizontal angular uh, difference between True North and magnetic North is called a magnetic variation or de- declination. So there's a variation. You can't trust totally magnetic North. It could take you off course if you follow it at a far enough distance. But true north is always true 
north. And for us as a church, and why we chose this, this name for us as a, a body of believers is because we, we feel like if, as long as we keep pointing towards Jesus Christ, true north, we're on the right track. As long as we keep encouraging each other, lifting each other up, pushing each other towards looking like Christ as his followers, we're pointing towards true north. And so we want the name to remind us that there's only one true north. From our faith perspective, there's only one true north. And it's not about a list or rules or, or attendance records. or It is, a, it is Jesus Christ. And so that's where the name comes from. You know, it's interesting. Jesus was meeting with his disciples one time, and, and uh, he was talking. He was actually prepping them for the fact that soon he was going to go to the cross, and they were going to be without him. And so he's trying to say something. They, they don't totally get it. They're not, you know, they're, they're not really picking up on what he's talking about, and, but, they, but they can sense something's going on. They're getting, he's getting them ready for something. And so he, makes a, he says to them at one point, he says, you know, I'm, my father's house... Uh, uh, there are many rooms. And in fact, the version I want to look at here in John, in John, he, he says, uh, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Uh, another, another gospel message says, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, I recognize uh, one translation. In fact, uh, the translation that's been used probably the most in, in the last couple of centuries says, in, in, in my fa- where my father is, there are many mansions. I'm going to prepare one for you. The real translation is, no, in my father's house are many rooms. I like that better, frankly. I'll take a room in, in the Heavenly Father's house any day to a mansion of my own. And so I love that. But he says, so he's talking to the disciples. He says, I, I'm going to get ready, and, you, and you're going to follow me, and you, and you know where to go. Well, Thomas said, looks around. The other guy says, you know where he's going? I don't know where he's going. We don't know where to go. What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? Where, how, how would we know where to go? And Jesus said these words, I'm the way. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one gets to the Father apart from me. And I know, I know we take some, some smacks on the jaw about often as, as believers because the, the world looks at us when we, when we make this statement, when we say stuff like, true north, there's only one right direction, one way into a relationship with the Father, one way to know that you're going to someday be with him forever, one way to know he's present with you now that you're part of his family, and that's through a relationship that begins by accepting Christ's sacrifice for you on the cross and, and that forgiveness that he's offering. And, and the world looks at us and says, that's, you know, you guys are so arrogant. You're obnoxious. You think you have the only way. Well, you know, here's, here's the thing. No, I, I didn't come up with that. Jesus said it. Now, you can decide that, you know, that he didn't know what he's talking about. You can decide that, you know, he was, a, he was arrogant, that he was off his rocker. Or you can decide that he knew what he's talking about, he, that there's evidence, enough evidence, that he was God in the flesh, and he was trying to not keep people out, but make sure nobody missed True North, which is what we want to do as a church. We don't want anyone to miss where Truth North is. And so he said to his disciples, as Thomas says, we don't know. He says, yeah, you do, because you know me. And I'm the way, the truth, 
in the life. So, so here was the big question. As those men gathered and prayed and, and, and eventually began to realize, okay, we believe that God has a mind for us to become a church. So then we got to ask ourselves, all right, then what is this church supposed to look like? What, what, you know, God just doesn't want to stick a, another building somewhere. He, or, you know, what, what does he have in mind for us as a church? And so, so we started working through that. And one way we worked through that, a couple of years prior to that, I had read a book that had really challenged me in my thinking. It was a book called Deep and Wide. It's written by Pastor Andy Stanley. Some of you know have listened to Charles Stanley. That's his dad. Andy Stanley pastors a church in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and uh, you know, just uh, church is doing some remarkable, has done some remarkable things. And, and I had read this book. And this, in this book, he spells out his perspective of what the church is supposed to be about. You know, what, his heart, what he feels like God's heart for the ministry is. And I don't agree with everything Stanley said, but there were a lot in this book that really struck a chord with me. And, and actually, I had never really listened to him preach much prior to that, but I started to after reading that book. And, uh, uh, and then one, one of the things I realized really quick is Stanley is a master communicator. I don't know if you ever listened to him. I would encourage you to. I'd encourage you to, to you know, Google him and, and listen to some of his messages. He's done a series recently on marriage that I want to do uh, on a, for a, like a five-week evening thing because I thought it was outstanding. Uh, and, and so I just, I really enjoyed listening, and I just feel like he does such a good job of taking the Word of God, which is relevant, but sometimes we forget that. We, we, don't, we forget that, man, this stuff, this, this is about me and living and my life. And so I, so I love listening to him just partly because I just like to hear how, well, how he communicates. Uh, but then there, were, there was a, another thing in the book that, that challenged my thinking a little bit. And I, and I really didn't agree with the statement totally, but, but it helped me think through, and, and I think helped us think through those, those men, uh, you know, kind of what we should be as a church. And uh, well, I got ahead of myself. You know, as I was listening to him preach, I remember when I was back in college, there was, I remember I read this quote one time, I don't remember who it was, but it said, uh, it's a shameful thing to bore people with the word of God. That's probably not an exact quote. And, and you know, I know... I, I have preached some duds. This may be one of them today. I don't know. We're going we're gonna to spend some time in church history, which for some it's like, oh, I love that stuff. And for some it's like, oh, really? But, but you know, I, I know I've preached some duds because I, I, I will tell you, I've preached some messages where five minutes into it, I'm thinking, oh, man, I hope I get done pretty soon. You know, I just, and, and so you, and, and that, what a frustrating feeling is. I know, I know that you're walking through that way, and I'm thinking, man, if I could just figure a way to quit now, you know, I've got to face this. But, but you know, I, I want, I want to, to not do that to the Word of God, because I think it is a shameful thing. I love this quote, uh, A.T. Robinson, when pastor said, the, the greatest proof that the Bible is inspired is that it has stood so much bad preaching. <laughs> so, so there you go. But anyway, so, uh, so as we walked through and, and started reading this book together, those six guys, uh, here's one of those statements that stuck out. In fact, on the, on the uh, cover of the book, it says, uh, creating churches, unchurched people love to attend. And, this, uh, and that statement up there is kind of their, their kind of encompassing statement. And, and it is, we are a church for the unchurched. Now, to be honest with you, there are things I like about that statement. And there are things I was a little uncomfortable with. And, and here's the, I'm going to give you the uncomfortable part. And then, and then we made an adjustment to it, but, but I'll get to that in a moment. The uncomfortable part is, is it kind of feels like it's saying, 
we are a church whose purpose for being a church is ministering to the unchurched. Now, that's a big deal to minister to the unchurched. I mean, it's, it's clear in the Word of God, and we'll talk about that when we, as we dig in these next couple of weeks. It's clear from the Word of God but that the reason when, when a person accepts Christ as their Savior, you know, and you accept that forgiveness, and you're adopted into God's family, and, you're, and you know heaven is your future home, you know, so, so why doesn't God just say, okay, you're in, that's to take you away? Well, he leaves us here to be light and salt. He's made that clear. We are supposed to have an impact. You know, I don't care what you call yourself. Call yourself an engineer, an electrician, a carpenter, you know, a, a homemaker. A, wherever it is, whatever you do as a vocation, God has stuck you there because those people that are around you need to see and hear about how much he loves them. That's why you're there. You're, you're all missionaries, quite frankly. You, know? you all have a vocation of, of representing true north, not the church, but Jesus Christ, wherever he's stuck you. And you're going to have come in contact with people who need to know that God loves them and wants a relationship with him. And so that is an important thing. The unchurched, those who do not know our Lord, should always be a passion of who we are. But there's more to it, and, and so we uh, we changed it. And here's, and I'll talk to you why. And this is actually going to be kind of the kickoff for our next couple of weeks. Uh, we we changed a, a church. True North is a church with a heart for the unchurched, because there are two pieces in play here. We are a church first, which means. We have a responsibility. In fact, we're going to talk about what that means. We have a responsibility to each other, to, to grow and, and mature and encourage each other. And, and so we are a church. There's a responsibility that goes with us just being a family that God has put together, that together we're trying to grow up in our faith. Now, if that's done right, the, the, the result is then we have this passion because God's heart is for those who don't know him. And so we, because we grow to love him and want to be like him, our passion becomes for the own church too. And so we're always conscious of the fact that, Lord, we have a responsibility. You, you have placed us in this community because there are people who do not know your Lord. So, so there are those two pieces that are very important. And we're only going to get to, to one this morning, but... To do that, uh, I want to do a little bit of historical background here. So, the first time, if you're reading your Bible, it's the very first time in the New Testament where the word church shows up, and it doesn't show up in the Old Testament, but the very first time it shows up is in this conversation in Matthew 16. And Let me give you just a framework. This is after Christ, or this is a point where Christ is, is talking about what is coming ahead. And he's talking to to Peter and... and uh, uh, he talks. He says to Peter, you know, they're, they're talking a little bit about who he is and what's going on there. And, and he's just said to the disciples, he's asked the question, who do, who do people say I am? And they kind of come up, well, you're Elijah, you're all, these, all these different individuals. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter blurts out, you're the son of God. And Jesus is really impressed by that. And he says, Peter, this is insight that God has given you. Because that's where he's trying to take them the whole time is for them to realize who he was, that he was, in fact, the Messiah, God in the flesh, and the Son of God. And, and so it's, it's a really cool moment. And then, and then he says to Peter these words, which have been misunderstood over the history of church. He says to Peter, okay, I tell you, 
You're Peter. Now, Peter means rock, little rock. Your name is, is Little Rock. In fact, that's the name Jesus had given him. Simon was the name that he had no, most people knew him by, but God called him Peter. You're, you're this little rock. In the midst of what I'm about to do, you're, you're going to be one of those little rocks. And upon this rock, talking about what they just talked about, who Jesus is, upon this rock, the fact that the Son of God, God has stepped into humanity to save people from their sins and to establish a relationship. Upon this rock, I am going to build, and it's the first time in the English text that word shows up, I'm going to build my church off of this information that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Peter, you're going to be one of the ones that I'll use to do that. And, and that's, that's been really misunderstood in that process, but the context makes it pretty clear. And, and so that word first shows up there. But here's an interesting thing, okay? Does it really? Because <clears throat> what it really says here, if you're looking at the original language, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my ecclesia. Now, some of you, we were in, you, we walked through this about a year ago. And so you know, oh, I know where he's going. So if you want to look smart, you can whisper, whisper to your neighbor. Ecclesia doesn't mean church. Ecclesia means an assembly, a gathering. You see, what, what, from the get-go, what God had in mind was his, the church is his people. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's his people. And so, so as you leave these doors and, and you vacate this building a little later, you didn't leave behind a church. The church went out, and that's what's so cool. The church went out into the community. The church went to Perkins to eat lunch, and the church went to, or maybe runs to have chili and and, and sweet rolls, you know, I don't know. The church went to the grocery store because you're the church. And, and so somewhere along the line, it became a place. And so we want to talk a little bit about that because ecclesia means the gathering assembly. It means a group that is gathered for a single purpose. Our purpose is because we want to point ourselves and everyone we come in contact towards true north. Towards Jesus Christ. Ecclesia called out the gathering assembly. Somewhere in the history, translations began to use the word kirk, which means a, the house of the Lord or, or the Lord's possession. It's a German word, and, and, and so the, the church began to take on a, a whole different element. It became a place where people came together to worship God in, in God's house, you know. And, and I, you know, I've heard people talk about, you know, it's a house of God, using that word. And that, which is, that's, they're right, because that's what that word means. But it's not the word that Jesus used or that is found anywhere else in the New Testament. Every time you see in your English translation the word church, which came from that word, it's really the word ecclesia, which means God's people, the gathering. In fact, what's really interesting is that word comes from a Saxon word, circ. Now, does that sound like another word you know? Because there's another English word we use that comes from that word as well. Any ideas what that is? No? Circus. Let that settle in and think in for a minute. So, because there have been, you know, there are times when the church is a little bit like a circus. Maybe that's, maybe there's some God in that, I don't know. 
So, so, so what happened? You know, and, and is this that big of a deal? You know, why, why do we really matter? Well, let me take us in history a little bit. In fact, let's go back before Constantine. We'll come back to him in just a moment. So we're going to go back, and, and we're really close. Christ has made his sacrifice. He, he died on the cross, just like he said. His enemies were convinced when that took place that it was done. In fact, his followers were convinced. If you remember, when he died on the cross, and, and they, went, they went back to fishing, it was done. <clears throat> until they saw the resurrected Jesus three days later. And then the world was turned upside down. And so this, this, this what, what the individuals who crucified Jesus thought they were killing this thing, it didn't kill at all. And, and from that point, it began to spread. And, and there were, they had a relatively a peaceful time for a couple of decades. You know, there were, there were people that, that didn't like him, obviously, and didn't trust him, and didn't really understand some of this stuff, and... And there were some rumors out there that uh, because they shared in communion, breaking the bread and drinking the cup, that they were actually cannibals, all kinds of, you know, how things happen. And, and so, so there's a little bit of that, but it wasn't too bad until there came a point where, if you remember in your history, remember, the, remember reading about Nero and they talked about him playing his fiddle while Rome burned down? Nero was, was an egomaniac for at least, at the very least, if not some insanity there, just an uh, uh, interesting individual. And there, in, in, in uh, 64, about 30 years after the time of Christ, Rome caught on fire. The, everybody believed that Nero himself had started the fire, that he had had people, because things were, he was getting bored, you know, everything was going too smoothly, and nothing like a good crisis to allow you to step back in as a leader and make yourself look good. So that was, that was the rumor, probably true, that Rome had the fires that had been started by Nero himself. So what he probably was hoping to accomplish was to be able to ride in, be the savior, and everybody could say, oh, he's such a great king. Wasn't working that way. It was going against him. So what he did instead was he started a rumor. The rumor was that the Christians started the fire. They tried to burn Rome down, and, and people believed it. And and so there began a, a period of, of intense persecution of the Christian. In fact, the, the worst of it came under, under Nero's hand himself. He did, in fact, you want to read a little bit of grotesque history, read about the things that Nero did. I believe the whole time knowing that they weren't responsible at all, but to keep this, this perspective and this, uh, this hate towards Christians going. One of the things, just one of them, and one of the most famous was he invited... Uh, the, the city officials and all the high power and movers and shakers to his garden for a special celebration. And, and as they came into the garden, they're, they're, they realized that what he had done is he had, he had arrested a bunch of Christians and he had tied them to poles and he put tar on them. And so the light for the garden party that night was these Christians burning alive on the poles. Well, backfired on Nero because he became so sadistic in what he did, the people started feeling sorry for the Christians. And, and uh, so things progressed, and over the next number of years, they, did, they began to put up with the Christian. In fact, got to a point where this guy shows up on the scene, and he becomes the ruler of Rome, Constantine, and he actually embraces Christianity. He, in fact, makes it the state religion. Whether he was really a believer or not, not, not sure, but he at least saw political, he, the political advantage of, 
of this group that was continuing to grow in spite of the persecution. In fact, sometimes it seemed like because of the persecution, more and more people come to Christ, and, Con- and Constantine thought, well, I might as well jump on this, and, and you know, here's a large group of people that uh, if I can get them on my side by being on their side, maybe, you know, I, I can stand a profit politically from this. And so that was really hit the heart process before. So what he did was he started financing these buildings, these houses of worship, these churches. And he helped build them so, you know, it just was only right that they should then give taxes back. And, and so suddenly the church became about not the people, but about a place. And suddenly the church was married to the state. It became part of the political power, and there's a lot of negotiation that went back and forth. And and this went on for a number of centuries. That was kind of that became the mindset. In fact, it's still the mindset in many respects. And and so we go through a number of centuries, and the, and the church becomes all about this place and and the power, and and the, there's a political element to it. And and uh, and then we get into several into the 1400s. In fact, the end of the 1400s. And there's a guy who steps on the scene, and by this time, Rome has kind of moved aside. They were the, Rome, the world power, and England has become the world power. In fact, English has become so dominant that they've started, everybody wants to learn English. So the English language is starting to spread throughout the world. And, and so Tyndale comes in on this, and up to this point, no one, the only ones that could read the scriptures, who at, by this time were done in Latin, were the priests and, and the religious leaders. And so everyone was dependent on, you had to go to a priest or a religious leader to, to have the scriptures explained to you. And, and so no one read them for himself. And Tyndale came on the scene and, and he thought, this isn't right. God meant for everyone to read the scriptures. And so he translated the first English translation of the scriptures. And so he began to work through this, this and, and went to the original language and was translating it. And then along, he comes along to that Matthew 16 passage, and he, and he every other translation, the Latin translations, the Latin Vulgate, all these translations have the word Kirk there, the church, and he gets there, and he's looking at the Greek, and it's like, wait a minute, this is ecclesia. How did we switch to this house of worship, this place? It's supposed to be a people. And so when he did his translation... He translated it to congregation. He went back to that idea of, of the church is not a building, it is a people. Now, you're looking at it and saying, well, okay, good. You know, that's, that seems just logical, a good thing. That's not really a big deal, is it? It is if you're in a position of power and you've gotten used to this place that has not only great religious power, and everybody goes to them for the answer to the questions, but also has this huge political influence, and it's all wrapped up in these elaborate buildings that have become part of the, 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 the visual picture of the power of the church. And suddenly this guy says, you know, it's not supposed to be that, it's actually the people. And not only that, he's going to let them read the Bible for themselves and start getting perspective of, of what, who God is by themselves. It was a big deal to them. In fact, it was such a big deal that they arrested him, tried him as a heretic, tied him to this pole, and, and this was the early version of hanging. They wouldn't hang him from a rope, but that man behind him would pull the cord and, and tighten the cord on his neck, strangled him to death, and then they burned him alive publicly so that everyone know that he was a heretic. And one of the key reasons was 
because he dared translate his, his version of the Bible back to saying the church's people. In fact, uh, not step on any toes, but oh, King James, not that one. I, I got the wrong King James there. <laughs> this one, yeah, this King James. Not too long later, uh, King James, who also was, was a proponent of, of Christianity, a leader of England, and, and he, he felt like, well, we need to come up with a better translation. And so he actually paid the money for some individuals to translate the scriptures, the King James version of the scriptures we had. And, uh, and he had a lot of good motivation. And frankly, it's a, it's a good translation in many ways. I, I just love how God protects his word. But it's interesting, he had these 15 edicts, edicts that he gave. And Edict number three, as, as he, he said, now, he, you translators, I want you to translate the scripture, but here's some rules that I want you, I'm financing this. It's being financed from the coffers of the, church, of, of, the, of the state of England, so there's some rules I have, and here's one of his rules. Edict number three was that the word church is to be retained, and the word congregation is not to be used in the King James translation of the scripture. Why? Purely pragmatic get the power back. You know, it's really easy to, if, if you know the building and people are required to be a part of, if you're going to be the church, you have to be associated with the, the place that we've structured as a church. There's control there. There's not control when it's a, this people. And, and plus, there's not control. I mean, the reality is when God starts doing things, it's like, whoa. And in fact, we're going to talk a little bit about that next week because that's exactly what happens. As God begins to work through the people, he gets out of control. And so they put it back, in, and ever since then, every translation we have, it's the word church. Now, let me tell you, I, 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 we're not going to worry about that. I just want to make sure you understand what you're, what you're reading when you read the word church. We're, we've been using this word so long now. It's, you know, I, I, I don't know, you know, it's going to be kind of weird if I start saying, okay, uh, invite folks next week to the ecclesia, because when you go invite them, they're going to go, what? I mean, it might be a good conversation starter. I just want to make sure that we know that you're the church. You're the people who have aligned yourself, who have accepted the gift that God has offered and, and that he wants to use to minister to each other. We're going to talk about that. In fact, uh, we're going to talk, we're going to go, go into uh, a little bit of Paul's description of the church next week. You might look ahead, Ephesians chapter 4, look at how he describes the church because there's something that he wants us to accomplish as a church, as True North, as a gathering of people. And our heart is, as, as the leaders of this church, and you as the people as well, Lord, we want to stay on track there. We want to keep pointing True North. And let me say to you, if, if you, if we talk about this relationship with God, and, and, and you're saying, that's, you know, I, that's kind of a foreign a relationship with God? I mean, I believe there's a God out there, but a relationship, that's what he wants. That's his heart for you. That's why Jesus came to this earth, was to make it possible for your relationship to be restored with God. And the thing that had broken that relationship, the thing that always breaks relationship, is sin had entered the picture. And, and so sin had to be paid for. It had to, there somehow it had to be forgiven. And the only way it could be forgiven was for Jesus Christ, God the Son, God to come and take on flesh and blood and make the payment for the penalty of sin so that you and I could be forgiven as a gift. And that's what he's offering you. So if you, if you are not a part of that, 
you know, whether you're part of True North, whether this is where God wants you to be or not, that's not the big deal. The big deal is, is he your father? Because he wants to be. And the big deal for you and I that are part of that group, the church, is that's why he has you out there. Because there are people all around you who need to know God loves them. And you're the one he's using to point the way. And I'm the one he's using to point the way. So we're going to keep walking and thinking this through together. Who are we as True North? What do we stand on? What's important to us? And so be praying with me as we walk through this conversation together. Let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you stepped into our world. You made the steps necessary so that our relationship with you could be restored. Thank you that church is not a building. (laughs) It's your people. And, And your people, when we are under the influence and under the direction of you as our Father, we're, we get to experience and be a part of things so much bigger than we are or could even imagine. And that's what we want to be as True North. We want to be those kind of people who God can actually use to share his light through the world. So we ask, we thank you that you give us that privilege and guide us through this conversation in the weeks ahead. We pray these things in your son's name.